What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Jesse Strauss. A professional athlete choosing to not participate in the fanfare of the national anthem on a national sports stage. Is it a familiar story? Can you picture it? In 2016, Colin Kaepernick, then a quarterback with the San Francisco 49ers, built up a now well-known protest against police killings of black people by taking a knee while the anthem was playing. His quiet but visible protest gained traction and spread to more players, more teams, and even into other sports outside of football. If you're a listener of this show, you're probably somewhat familiar with that situation and probably aware that Kaepernick was essentially blacklisted and lost the ability to play football at the professional level punished for leading a protest. 20 years earlier, though, a professional basketball player did virtually the same thing. He sat out the national anthem for religious and political reasons, and when a media circus zeroed in on him for it, he too was suspended and eventually forced out of the league. Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf was a young NBA star playing for the Denver Nuggets with impressive skills he sometimes compared to an earlier version of Steph Curry, and he's far from a household name, but with a brand new autobiography called In the Blink of an Eye, just published under Colin Kaepernick's publishing imprint, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf's story is being memorialized in a much more accessible way. We're going to welcome Mahmoud himself in just a minute to talk about how he became political, his reversion to Islam, his experience being pushed out of the NBA, and his relationship to more recent sports protests. But before we dive in, I'm excited to introduce my guest co-host today. I know for listeners, it's not common to bring in hosts you're not already familiar with, but our guest today has such deep knowledge of this subject matter that we knew we'd be able to go deeper with much better insight. I myself hadn't heard of Abdul Rauf until about eight years ago when my guest host today, Raphael Cohen, told me he'd been long deeply moved by Abdul Rauf's story and was in the process of writing an epic poem dedicated to the blacklisted baller. Raphael is an Oakland-based activist, journalist, writer, and poet. In 2016, Raphael published Rebel Elegant, a chapbook and solo performance blending poetry and biography basketball history and social commentary to honor Mahmoud Abdul Rauf's journey. Here's a short excerpt from Rebel Elegant. Months into his silent protest, a local sports writer caught wind of the pattern, inquired about an interview, whereupon the would-be cornerstone candidly spoke his mind. A tiny blurb appeared in the following morning's post, and at the next team practice, A mob of men, middle-aged, wielding mics and contempt, thinly costumed in obtuse questions, whose nuanced answers they already knew would never land a spot in their story's final drafts. Mahmoud cited his Muslim faith first, a precept of offering praise to no entity but Allah. When reporters insinuated the red, white, and blue solely signified liberty, he retorted, rather famously. It's also a a symbol of oppression, uh, of tyranny, so it depends on how you look at it. He patiently referenced the history of U.S. slavery, modern economic inequity, and military aggression. He then labeled the act of affording a state's emblem undivided attention nationalistic ritualism, which he considered forbidden no matter the country he lived in. When asked about the League's presumed heavy-handed response, he flipped the script like a boss. It's constitutional to burn the flag. 
So <laughs> why give me a problem for not staying? Suffice to say, it took less than a day for the bombs to burst on air. That was a selection from Raphael Cohen's Rebel Elegant, a chapbook dedicated to Mahmoud Abdul Rauf's story. And the bombs he's referencing were the blacklisting of Mahmoud Abdul Rauf from the National Basketball Association, where because of his principled stance against standing for the American flag, he was no longer able to work. Thank you for hosting with me today, Raphael. Oh, my pleasure, Jesse. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here and, and, and thrilled to help introduce Mahmoud to our listeners who aren't already familiar with his story. Uh, just finished the autobiography and very excited to get into it with both of you. All right. So I've already told the super short paragraph version of Mahmoud's story. We'll spend the rest of the hour diving in deep with the former NBA star himself. Mahmoud abdul Rauf. thank you so much for taking the time and joining us today. No, thank you for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Let, let's let's start at the beginning, or I mean, as close to it as possible. You grew up in Gulfport, Mississippi, in the '70s and '80s. I'm wondering if you can just start us off by, by by telling us a little bit about your upbringing and how basketball became so central in your life. Yeah, as you said, I was yeah uh, born and raised in Gulfport, Mississippi. Uh, my mother, a single parent, the equivalent of an eighth grade education. We always say that she was far more educated, you know, in just terms of her 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 street. Uh, street knowledge and taking care of us, but uh, formally eighth grade education. Um, no father in the home, uh, growing up in the ghetto, many, many days, you know, not having much to eat, you know, not always having proper, proper get aware, those type of struggles. Uh, yeah, Mississippi is, has always been, even now, when you compare it to most states in, in the country, whether it's education, whether it's cost of, I mean, in terms of what people are getting paid, minimum wage or what have you, whether it's uh, racial inequalities, they're always, almost always on the top of the list in, in those categories. So it's, it, was, it was definitely a challenge. Right okay. now. And, and uh, you know, in your preteen and adolescent years, you also began to deal with the effects of Tourette syndrome. And uh, I just wonder if you can touch on your experience of Tourette's. It's misdiagnosis in your high school years. It was a number of years before it was properly diagnosed. Yes. You know, how it impacted you then, how, how you deal with it today even. Oh, man. Uh, I wasn't diagnosed until, seven, I think, about 17, going to 11th grade. But from an early age, man, I used to have, it started with blackouts. And I would be watching TV and I would, people would think I'm going to sleep, but I wasn't. And my mother got on me on numerous occasions, you know, thinking I was. And I was actually boxing a guy named Ben McGee one time. You know, we were in a boxing match and we just sitting and bobbing and weaving and, and, and I went into it. And I knew it because after he hit me, they said he cocked back so far, hit me right in my face. And I, when I did this, I, I saw him, he was scared. And I knew oh, I must, I, I just came out of that blackout. And that was scary. But then the ticks began to happen, just like they came out of nowhere. And I'm still in elementary school. So all of this time, I don't know what it is I have. I'm, I'm just living with something and I don't, I don't have a name for it. And we ended up, my mother ended up taking me to the doctor. He ended up saying, you have habits, they come and they go. And I would tell people, hey, what's wrong with you, boy? They're habits, they come and they go. And he gave me these huge pills to take. They used to make me gag. I would throw them into the cinder blocks in the hole in one part of the house uh, to give my mother the impression I was taking them. But man, from the moment you wake up to the moment you're out cold, it's like terrorizing your body. You know, your mind and your body is trying to find a balance. And when you move, it's like you don't feel right. You got to do it again. And 
even going to play basketball at that early age, you know, waking up at four o'clock in the morning, being at the court by five, it takes like 40 something minutes just to get out the house because you're putting on your uh, socks, taking them off, putting them on, taking them off and touching the door, closing it, opening it. And then walk, dr uh, dribbling up the basketball court, same. I mean, I mean, dribbling up about four blocks to get to the basketball court. As you're dribbling, it doesn't feel right. You have to, if you mess up a few times, you got to back up from where you were 10 steps and do it again. And whatever you do with your right, you do with your left. That may take another 30, 40 minutes to get there. And then when you get there, you, <laughs> you're going through the drills and you're conscientious of it. And at the end of it, it's like you're ready to go an hour and a half. You're breathing hard. <gasps> you can't catch your breath. You're about to die. And I'm not exaggerating. Tourette's is like this new person, this other person say, hey, you got to play me now. I need you to make 10 shots, all net. None of them can hit the rim. The move that you make prior to the shot can have no glitches, and you have to do it while you're tired. Mm. I just came out of an hour and a half, two hours. So now I could hit nine in a row. That 10th one skim rim goes in. I can't recount the 10th one. I have to start at zero. So that may take an hour and a half. Walking off the court, you may mess up a few times. You may back up and do that drill twice. And so I literally had, like, every day was, like, almost a near-death experience for me. And that's what Tourette's was doing. And I had to devise a strategy. I said, man, I got to find a way because if I don't, I'm going to kill myself. Mm -hmm. So I would take the ball after I finished that second drill of 10. That take me about an hour and a half. I would take the ball and I would sling it towards my house. So when I finally got in, as I'm dribbling, if it didn't feel right when I bagged up, at least I'm not under the goal to shoot. Because I said, I'm going to kill myself if I don't. And I had to find ways. But that was every single day. Every man. single day. And so, and, and, and today, I mean, obviously it's a, you're a long way from your, from your elementary and junior high years, you obviously found different tactics and tools to deal with it. How, how, how do you manage it these days as an adult? Man, look, still, every time I wake up, uh, <laughs> until I'm knocked out, you're constantly having to control, try to control yourself to, to seem normal. It, it always fails, but man, for me, prayer is highly important, even as it was then. Um, also exercise. Uh, I try to take naps, you know, I'm big on naps when I can, uh, naps are helpful to me. And then I'm, I, I try to monitor very much, not just what I eat, but how my body's responding to how much I eat, you know, because if I eat a little bit too much, it, I, I can feel it. It's on its way. And so these are the ways I try my best to, to, among other things, try to cope with it. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's move ahead a little bit. You spent your college years at LSU, that's Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge for folks unaware. And that's where you really start getting a ton of national attention in basketball circles. You land on the cover of Sports Illustrated in 1989. And you know, in, in the autobiography, you talk about dealing with academic challenges at school, occasionally not having enough to eat. So I'm real curious if you could, if you could kind of walk us through this, this you know, quote unquote, double life that you're leading there, basically. And we're interested in that overall experience, but in particular, if you could talk a little bit about the rules around compensation for college athletes and how that affected you at the time. That's, be, that's kind of become a hot button topic in recent years. Certainly the reality of it was as well back then. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you're right. They, they see the image. You know, they, they, they see this, this, this guy. He's the top guard in the nation. He's coming to LSU. And uh, some of them probably didn't even know the struggles that I had with Tourette syndrome, you know. Uh, because you're just a new face on campus. But I remember getting there, man. I was so humiliated because here it is. You know, I'm this, as I said, number one guard coming out, all of this hype. Because at that time, it's just hype because we haven't played. 
And I'm going to this, uh, before they assigned me my classes, they took me, it was upstairs somewhere in a room, it was an open room, and they had me reading. I could read well, I could spell well, but my comprehension skills, my critical thinking skills were terrible. Cause I just memorized my way through school and it, they exposed it terribly because they started asking me what like singular words mean. I said, I don't know. They asked me again. I don't know. They asked me again. I started to feel it, man. I'm like, this is getting humiliating. Right. And I man, it's, it's a feeling that I don't, man, I don't want to feel again. And they ended up saying, well, what do you, what do you get out of the story? I said, I don't even know. And so they put me in a remedial reading class. So while I'm at LSU, I had to learn, I could read and spell, but I had to learn how to understand, how to extract morals from stories. And but I'm I'm on campus breaking records, <laughs> right? And you know, so I'm coming off as this confident guy. Yeah, when it comes to basketball, I'm a people's person. I'm kind of, but I had so many insecurities, and I'm having to call Coach Cars on occasion. Don't want to, cause that pride. But I'm like, look, man, Coach, I'm hungry. I need something to eat. You know, and, and but he would come and he would take me to rallies, give me a couple of cheeseburgers and some fries, and I'm good. But I just started looking at that, and that's, that's very oppressive. You know what I mean? And and you're, 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 you're taking us all around to these places, and you're making, like, millions using our image, everything. And we're starving on campus? <laughs> you know? Yeah, this, there's no way a person can say that's just. And the trade-off ain't even close. The possibility of a good education with the possibility of a good job in the market, what you getting yours now. But it was very tough. It was, it was very tough, you know, just and just navigating through that, trying to be great, not having enough to eat while they're making millions. You also got this Tourette syndrome. A lot of people don't know about you. You trying to navigate with that as well. Let's 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 talk a little more about LSU and then we'll get into the NBA years. You had two incredible years there at LSU. We, we should note that you set the all-time college basketball record for total points scored and the highest scoring average for a freshman player. Those are records that still stand today, 30-plus years later. In that time, you also introduced to Malcolm X when Coach Dale Brown, who was an older white man, gives you a copy of Malcolm's autobiography. I have always been curious about what you think compelled Coach Brown to give you that book. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that. And more, and more importantly, though, how did, how did reading Malcolm at that point begin to change your life? I was struggling in high school somewhat with my faith. Uh, not that I didn't know I believe in God, but I was having issues with, you know, the information, you know, and I, and I kept hearing the same responses. We just got to believe and you can't question God. And I'm like, that don't, God gives us a mind. And I'm not questioning for the wrong reason. I'm questioning because I want to know. So I do better. And when he gave me that book, the timing was perfect. And I never heard of Malcolm and I began to read about his life, man. And just his mind, you know, uh, and again, not that you agree with everything, but I'm listening to him and just how he utilized rhetoric and analogies. And, you know, just, I'm like, wow, this is amazing. But the thing too, that got me was his fearlessness, his courage. Like just, man, he, he's saying, he don't mean things he's saying, you can get killed for that. And he just, Man, he's got a sense of freedom that I want, that I don't have. You know, because I, you know, growing up in the South, you, you're conditioned. All of us have this, every person on this earth, in some places, well, there's a social conditioning that takes place. And sometimes you don't realize, you know, even our answers and how we do things, you're like, don't say this, you lose, you know, just play the game. And I'm like, man, he's not moving like that. And I want to be like that. 
And so that's what influenced me and his, his life story that eventually, and I know we're going to get to it, that led to something else later on. But Dale, yeah, this white guy from North Dakota, <laughs> uh, I asked him years later, I said, I, I said, coach, I said, I keep, people keep asking me and I've never asked you, what compelled you to give me that book? He said, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I said, what? He said, it could possibly be that, you know, the person and, and Malcolm was somebody, you know, looks like you and coming from similar that, okay, this, maybe this personality could, could, could influence him. I said, okay, that, that makes sense. <laughs> So we are in conversation with former NBA player Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, whose story is chronicled in his new autobiography called In the Blink of an Eye. So, Mahmoud, you were just talking about your first exposure to Malcolm X and, you know, the way that you saw him experiencing a certain sense of freedom. I'm wondering if you can bring us forward into when, you know, you declared for the NBA draft in 1990, you were selected third overall by the Denver Nuggets. Can you talk about your first few years in Denver and at the same time that parallel story about kind of your search for, in your words, what you were describing just now as freedom? Great question. When I first got to Denver, uh, I was still, even though I read Malcolm, when you've been something for so long, you still kind of, there's, there's a sense of fear. Like, you, you, you quite like, is this is it, you know, is it right or is it not right? But it feels like it could be. And so I embraced, uh, I befriended this, uh, and I, I grew up as a Baptist, but I befriended this Catholic priest. I can't remember his name. And we would talk, but he would bring a protege along called Mark James, named Mark uh, out of uh, New York. And Mark and I became close. And one day at, 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 at my home, Mark brought up Islam in conversation. And I said, man, you interested? He said, yeah. And he told me he met this Muslim brother where we can go pick up the Quran. We got it, drove back home. And I picked it up and literally about two, three pages later, whatever I read, I can't remember what it was, but I, I mean, I literally remember the feeling. Uh, I knew that this was it for me. And I looked across the table and I said, I don't know about you, man, but my search is over. I'm going to be a Muslim. So I began to go to the master, talking to people, reading. So what happened then was that's when it just skyrocketed. When I became a Muslim publicly, like almost every city I went to, Muslims would, I don't, I'm a people's person, so I'm approachable. So they would, hey, salam alaykum, huh? From a distance, I'd turn around, hey, salam alaykum, brother, what's happening? If I felt good, I mean, you come into my room, we're going to sit, we're going to talk. And so every city became like classrooms, you know, all throughout the night, people with different disciplines, history, social sciences, political science, you name it. And I would just sit around and listen. And then sometimes they bring me books on the subject. Sometimes they give me the authors. And then my, my, my heroes changed. When you begin to read, you begin to look at things differently. Now my, my inspirations are like thinkers. Like I'm like, man, I love the way this woman or this man thinks. How do you put that together? And so I, I was trying to emulate. I said, I want to emulate. This is, I want that type of freedom that they have. I don't have it. You know, I want to be able to say what I feel and just whatever the consequences that's the way it's going to be you know because life is short we none of us are going to make it out of here alive right and and so that's what began to shift for me during that period because of accepting islam and reading and then meeting people having these conversations because you get strength through that when you see enough examples of people doing that I said man you, you ain't the only one 
there's a history of people taking these positions. What, what side do you want to be on? And I know my heart. God knows my heart. And I know it's going to be twisted here. And I know some people going to get it. Some people going to think, oh, this dude is a he's a terrorist. <laughs> he's a he's a radical. He's a and he and, and he got a lot of hate. Then some people going to be like, no, you got to listen. This dude loves humanity. You don't care if you black, white, you're right, Jew, eight, look, if you if you doing right, hey, if he feels he's going to break, if you're doing wrong, he's going to call you out, whether you Muslim with the label or not. And so I said, this is the way I want to live. And that's what influenced it. And so you're talking about a lot about the changes, personal, spiritual, political that are happening in those first few years in Denver. And ultimately, those those uh, culminate in the decision that you make uh, without much fanfare to stop standing for the playing of the national anthem. Um, I feel like you've told us a little bit about how you came to that decision. I, I, I wonder if you could walk through for our listeners who are not familiar uh, how that decision became public and the fallout that uh, that followed soon after and uh, how, you know, how you interpreted what was going on for you and, 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 and how you were being portrayed in the media. Uh, Tell, yeah, yeah uh, I'd been doing it, I think, maybe four to six months previous season. Look, I knew what I was doing, but at the same time, I'm still like learning and I'm gathering more data. <laughs> right. But what happened was some reporter caught wind of it the next season. And Todd Ely, who was the assistant GM at the time, I can remember like yesterday, man, I'm in this, I'm in the locker room and he comes in, sit and then knees, put, you know, a Kaepernick. Right. And he's talking to me. He said, hey, some, you know, a reporter caught wind that you're not standing for the flag. Would you like to get your message out? I said, man, we, I don't have no problem talking to anybody. And, and the reason I said that, too, because at that time, too, I had already decided that I got to live and die. And I've been saying this for years, live and die with a free conscience and a free soul. I keep telling myself, you know, we got to motivate ourselves daily to do stuff. Right. And to stay grounded. And so I said, yeah, no problem. I said, man, you know, we talk about this stuff all the time on the planes, on the buses, <laughs> you know, so no big deal. But it was a big deal. <laughs> and and uh, I did the interview. So I come back. We have a game. Uh, against Shaq, I'm in shoot around. I see the reporters, and I'm thinking they're there literally because Shaq is in town. Because we, I think at that time we were decent, but uh, man, they came to me and the first question is no warm up or nothing. What do you think about the American flag? So, oh, that's what this is about. And I spoke my conscience. I mean, that's how it happened. And then before you know it, I come back that night. I'm coming to the locker room. Jim Gillen stops me. He said, hey, before I could even put my, he said, Bernie wants to see you. And as I'm turning around, I see a couple of players, they, the eyebrows go up like, like they've been told already what it's about. But I don't know. So I go down, and when I get into the office, Bernie, um, he says, well, the NBA wants you to say it. And if you don't, they're threatening to uh, suspend you. What do you say? I said, can't do it, Bernie. He said, well, some people want to get on the phone with you. So Okay. And they identified themselves being with the NBA. I, I wish I could remember, man, the names. At any rate, uh, we had a conversation and they were trying to convince me. And I tell this story all the time and I tell it for a reason. They identified themselves as Jewish. I know you're Jewish and we, we have a great relationship. <laughs> and sometimes people want to make the distinct, you know, like, you know, look, you got Muslims who disagree on certain issues, you know, so. They, they gave me an example. I can't remember the example. And, and it wasn't about, 
you being Jew or you being Christian. No, it's about if it applies, it resonates, it resonates. If it don't, it don't. And what happened when they gave me the example, I listened. I politely, you know, thank you for offering me that information. I said, but the example that you gave me don't apply to me. I said, I'm not Jewish. I'm Muslim. And so, therefore, I'm not standing. He said, okay. All right. And they get off the phone. I'm, man, I'm so green. I've never been suspended for anything in my life. I'm thinking there's going to be an act of legislation. You got to go through bureaucratic process, some days. I said, hey, so I, can I go back and get my uniform? And he said, nope. I said, well, I'm suspended now? He said, yeah. I said, now? I said, wow. So I said, well, can I go put my clothes on and go in the stands and support the team? He said, no. He said, they don't even want you on the premises. Okay. So I got up and I went down and I told him, I said, hey, man, I won't be with y'all tonight. Y'all have a go. They looked at me like I was crazy and I left. And before you know it, it was like that quick from the time that happened to the next, it went global. And it was like, man, you heard all of this stuff. I mean, the caricatures started popping up, making me look Arab. You know what I mean? He's this, he's that. Uh, he's a troublemaker. I'm like, wow, that's interesting. And, and that, that was the tough part because you're sitting back and you're almost powerless because they can sit there and they can just say whatever they want. Right. And uh, how they want to say it, assassinating your character. And, and you really don't have much you can do about it. And we've talked a lot about how uh, what really one major factor that distinguishes your protest, your moment versus Kaepernick's is the lack of social media then. So really, uh, the power holders in the press really get to frame the story however they see fit. And of course, they default to a narrative of you, as you said, as a troublemaker. And there's no there's no counter narrative that's as widely accessible. And so I imagine that was, uh, well, I know that that was really challenging to, to no, make you made, experience. You made a great point. And it wasn't until actually I talked to Dr. Harry Edwards that brought that to light because uh, he made, of course, it wasn't me uh, that made it, but he, I didn't look at it that way. You know? uh, and they're definitely two different, two different time periods that makes a big difference. And no, he said when Muhammad Ali did what he did, they, it was under the Black Power Movement. He had a, a movement to frame it on. When Kaepernick did what he did, it was under the, the Black Lives Matter movement. He said, when you and Craig Hodges did it, there was no movement to frame it on. It's like you guys were in an ocean by yourself. He said, which made it, and this is his words, because you got to be careful sometimes. You know how people are. You know, you start saying, well, it was tougher. We played and, you know, say, okay, it was different. You know, and one can argue tougher, but I, my thing is, it made sense to me. I said, wow, that's deep. He said it was tougher when you guys, because you didn't have that to frame. And that's just real talk. And I can only imagine if we had social media, right? But it was easy for them to, to control the narrative. Yeah, did I have death threats? Yes. Did I have a lot of hate mail? Yes. But man, I had so many, probably more letters that came through agreeing. And I'm talking about, they would identify themselves. I'm a Christian. Oh, I'm a white Southern Christian. I am a Jew from, you know, boom. I am. And they're like, I, this is what I think about them. And they would, I said, whoa, this is deep. But of course, the media is not going to expose that. They don't want you to know that side. Uh, it was, it was, it, it would have made a difference. And then so many people too didn't believe in standing for the national anthem themselves. 
just like when Kaepernick, you started seeing a whole bunch of people posting, right? And it gained momentum and it was hard for them to control it. Yeah. Great point. So that's the voice of former NBA player Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, who wrote about his story of being blacklisted by the NBA in 1996 for not participating in the national anthem in his new autobiography called In the Blink of an Eye. Mahmoud, I wanted to ask you during this time, um, what were your relationships and conversations with teammates like? Did you maintain relationships with the teammates? I mean, clearly they didn't want you on the premises uh, not not the teammates, but the management didn't want you on the premises. Or on the other hand, like, did being blacklisted eventually mean that the NBA players themselves were avoiding you? What was that you know like? What? Uh, that's that's also a good question. Uh, of course, there I don't expect everybody to agree with my position. Uh, and there were some athletes that didn't. I think there was a. I think he played with New Jersey, Jason. I can't remember his name. He was like a little small forward, light complexion guy. I mean, he just came out just aggressive. <laughs> right uh, with the condemnation um but my teammate my teammates knew me right because we again we would have these conversations we we have like comparative religion debates on the bus dale ellis sat next to me i gave him this book and he kept it even after i left denver and he would come back the uh, the couple of years or so i'm in sacramento and he would show the book to me. I'm still reading it, Mahmoud. It was called Behold the Pale Horse, right? You know, and and so Dikembe and I, uh, uh, even when Spencer, I think, hey, uh, what's his name? Uh, Elmore Spencer was on the team. Very intelligent guy. We would all get into conversations about so much, about the world, about politics. Dikembe and I had a debate about Iran leadership. You know, and he was all oh, there. This I said, where you getting that information? Well, I studied university. I said, well, you know, look, man, you gonna and oh, I, and I read it in the paper. I said, how many times they misquoted you, and you gonna do this? And so we would go back and forth and say, man, you and you gonna take the university? Everybody has an agenda. I said, have you read his words? Have you? And so one day I tore, I had, I tore the cover off of it, and I was reading. I said, man, check this out. He said, who is it by? I said, quit worrying about who is it by. Just tell me what you think. And then he read it, and then afterwards he said. I said, what do you think about it? He said, very good. I said, you know who that's by? And he said, who? I said, Imam Khomeini. <gasps> I'm shocked, <laughs> right? I say, man, just, just, just research and read, and then you base it. So we would do this all the time, all the time. And so my teammates knew me. And, but, and because it didn't last long, as a result of me talking to my mentor, Muhammad Alasi, Right. Uh, I decided to come back um, and I knew I, I didn't want to because I knew man, if I come back, even though what he said made sense to me. It's going to y'all don't think I compromise. And that's what they try to say. So then I would have to say, no, 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 no. Absolutely. I, I still feel the same way. And I would have to say it with more. You know, I said, but as, as a Muslim, as a human being, if we see something better, we do that. And so he was telling me, he said, you can not stand or you can come back and make a dua and use this platform. Right. And and I'm and then he gave me an example of the prophet of something that he did, like when he was uh, sitting down. And and at that time, the, the, there's a certain section of, of Medina. I, I forget the tribe's name. It was a Jewish tribe that they were at war. And when they came by, some of the companions were like uh, the prophet stood up because they were coming with a, a funeral procession. 
And they said, Prophet, why are you standing? We, they, they're killing us. We're fighting them. He says, I'm not standing uh, for their cause. He said, I'm standing because God gave a life and he took a life away. Right? He said, so you can stand, but you can, for those who are oppressed, those who are this. And I said, wow. Okay. But it was hard for me to come back. And I had to just, I had to keep giving it to him. So look, man, you can say what you want. I said, look, I still feel the same way. You ask me a question, I'm going to give you the same answer. Every, you know, so, but that's, uh, it, it was, it was tough going to arenas in a sense because you would see people in so many contradictions and so many people being hypocritical and their love for the flag and the anthem and booing me at the same time and you know, singing the song and, you know, just not showing any reverence to it or whatever. But uh, it was an interesting time, my brother, interesting time, so many details. And unfortunately, you know, you know, when you write a book, time constraints, pay, uh, amount of pages, you can't put everything. So you try to single out, you know, put what you can that's going to fit into the story but there's so much so much more you know that that uh that that that, that goes down man <laughs> yeah yeah and you know i know we're not going to get to all the questions that we want to ask you just on that very basis but i do want to touch on some stuff that maybe didn't get as fleshed out in the book for folks who are really interested and like myself or not who've been wondering over the years you know let's let's kind of move forward you get traded by denver in the off season it's clear they don't want to deal with the fallout from the controversy, you get traded to the Sacramento Kings. You're a borderline all-star at this point. You're, you know, averaging near 20 points, seven assists a game. But almost as soon as you get to Sacramento, they start messing with your time. Some, some nights you're not even getting on the court. And ultimately, after two seasons there, you decide to take your talent overseas. It should be the prime of your NBA career, but you decide to see what's happening overseas. You start for a season playing in Turkey. Um, you also get married and become a father during this time. It's less widely known, I think, that you continued playing overseas for over a decade after that, you know, from Italy to Greece to Russia to Saudi Arabia, eventually in Japan for a couple of years in your early 40s. You touch a bit on those experiences in the book. I wonder if you can share with us some of your biggest takeaways from those years abroad. And Jesse brought up a, a great reference a few days ago when we were talking of James Baldwin, talking about his experiences being in Europe has given him a a different kind of space and perspective on racism in the U.S. And I wonder if being outside of the U.S. on and off those years offer you any new insights on the U.S. and how racism and specifically anti-blackness operates in the U.S. What, what, what were some of those takeaways from, from, those, from those years traveling to so many different countries? So many takeaways. Uh, but when, when, I, when I started traveling overseas, it even highlighted more uh, of what I felt about America, you know, just, uh, I mean, so many things, not, not just the, 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 the racial thing. I'm, there's racism everywhere, but the places I went to, I definitely didn't. And sometimes, and I'm going to be fair, I'm going to be fair in terms of, I'm going to give this conversation some grace. When you're going sometimes as an athlete with a name, you know, you still may be treated a little differently than say someone else in the country, right? So I know it exists, but just the whole, the ambiance, the air of where I, where I was going, I didn't feel it and necessarily see it like I, like I was here. Even when you start learning things, man, about the way they do things. Like here in this country, man, most of every turn, uh, corner, 
Most of every corner you turn, it seems like they're taking from you. They're charging you this tax. They're doing this. It's like it's hard almost to get ahead. And I find in some of these countries, man, they don't have property tax. You know what I mean? You know, you don't have to worry about, oh, if I experience bad times, a lot of families are in that where they miss three years of paying their bills because they got to make a choice between these huge health care costs. Over 40 something million people or more don't have health care. What's supposed to be an exceptional country, so rich, right, and resourceful. You got to make a choice. I mean, I can, now you've been paying for this house for 20 years. Now you're telling me I lose it because I experienced bad. The stuff that they're putting in their foods, health care, free because you're a taxpayer, right? That's not an extra cost. You know, I'm like, darn, I love the way y'all take care of y'all people. Even the welfare system in some of those places, a whole lot better than this one. You're not putting, in some of those countries, you're not putting pesticides and things and foods that's killing people, trying to convince, oh, just in moderation. You, 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 we just, you know, kill you in moderation. Now, you, so I look at this, man, and I'm like, there's so much that appealed to me. So all of these things just began to explode. And then when you travel, especially if your traveling experiences are like mine have been, and you start really paying attention, you say there are always trade-offs. Yeah, there's bad everywhere. There's racism everywhere. But when you look at the trade-offs and then what a person wants at that time, I'm like, oh, man, I, I don't want to be. I've, I've been here for 53 years. I've given y'all a chance. <laughs> I want to give somebody else a chance now. I still have roots here. I still want my, you know, I have families. and But I'm, I'm at that place in my life now, Raphael. I'm like, look, man, I want to go and, and, and give that experience somewhere else. We, we're starting to wind down here. I, I can't let the opportunity pass without checking in with you about some of the other U.S.-based contemporary issues that we want to hear your take on. And of course, the current state of athlete activism is, is among those. Uh, obviously, Colin Kaepernick's protest in 2016 reignited a fairly dormant tradition of professional athletes in the U.S. speaking out for racial and economic justice, for human rights. You know, in the years since, we've seen a lot of prominent NBA players lend their support to the Black Lives Matter movement, campaigns for police accountability. What's your feeling about the effectiveness and impact of current player protest? And what, you know, what more would you like to see today's athletes to, what more, what more would you like to see them do to bring about meaningful social change? Uh, look, activism is necessary. I, don't, I mean, of course we're talking about athletes. Activism is always necessary. You never get anything done by, you know, not being active. As you said, though, it's, it's, it's how you do it. You know, there's so many ways to skin a cat, so to speak. Uh, I, I, I definitely, uh, you know, I think back to, I think it was J. Edgar Hoover years where he had mentioned something is now declassified. We want to silence those who are like the Muhammad Ali types, and we want to push and promote the basically brain dead, you know, non-politically, I mean, non-political, what have you, athlete. And because they know the power in uh, athlete's voice, you know, because they're so visible. And a lot of children, a lot of young people, you know, look, man, look, a, a lot of people have a tendency to listen to who they admire more than a parent sometimes, more than a teacher. And so uh, I think that that's, that's one angle. It, it's definitely a must and it should be done. On another angle, we have to be careful because Richard Itton, I think a political science scientist said something down the lines of, he cautions against viewing protest as inherently revolutionary. Because once it becomes routine, 
right? It's easily molded and shaped into the hegemonic understanding of things, right? The powers that be, right? And what they, they can make it fashionable. And so with, with NBA, for example, and you know, you have, oh, let's wear I can't breathe shirts and and get on and you you have these prepared speeches that you give, right? But then really not dealing with the core, you know, like getting to the meat and bones of the issue. And so it's this perception, right, that we're really doing something and we're making change. And so when he said that, this is the thing I saw a lot of, it's, it's, uh, it's performative. It's like, a, it's, it's a lot of on the surface, you know, let's show that we're progressive. And, and, but, but if you just look at it a little bit more, you realize sometimes ah, you're not as progressive as I thought you were. Like even when uh, uh, Westbrook and uh, James Harden was in China during this time and they were getting ready. Someone asked him a question about Uyghur situation or what's happening in China. And they was getting ready to address it. Somebody said, no, no, don't answer that. I said, oh, I thought you would allow your athletes to you know, speak out on these issues. But they don't want to tell you that the NBA has a facility in that same region. They're doing business there, you know, and so they don't want to mess up business. That's more important than the lives that are being being affected. So you're not as progressive as you say you are, you know. So I think more can be done from all of us, but them too. And now they're making types of money that we never made. Right now. They're making the type of money that you can I mean, you can really retire five, six times over. And so you wonder, like, man, if you sometimes people don't say anything because of fear of losing. Right. You are sitting on so many millions. Right. You can take these positions and you still good. But we, we still don't do that. Right. And so I think that that's something that could be done differently, man. We, we just develop a little bit more courage. And we organize better, even with athletes, for example. I said this along. Why don't, why don't a, like a social political, uh, like you have certain universities, they'll, they'll have a, the, the alumni will have a fund where any player that played for their university, like Kentucky, you can come back years later, you can get your degree. So why don't, why, why don't players create a fund so that when an athlete, social political fund or whatever you call it, when an athlete speaks out, right? He don't have to worry about, like, if you do, that's taken care of, right? Like, we got a fund that, you know, gives you that type of strength and power to do that. Or even put it in some bylaws, you know, work toward, like, look, no, you can't, you know what I mean? You, something so that, because I think a lot of people want to, but they're afraid. They're fearful, you know, of, 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 of the pushback. But there are so many issues to address, Raphael. I mean, I can't begin to say... For me or for somebody else, it may be one thing. It may be police accountability. It may be health care. It may be whatever. But whatever that niche is for you that you have a heart for, learn about it. Try to galvanize like Ka Kaepernick did. Teams are important. I've learned that over the years. You can say something. You can, you can establish something. But prophets had disciples. Businesses have teams. Man, connecting with the right team is highly important. Putting people in place that, that, that are experts, that are skillful at certain things, come up with a strategy and whatever issues that are dear to you, tackle them. Tackle them, be relentless, protect yourself as much as possible. But when it's all said and done, you know, whether you, you, you lose something in this life or not, just stand on some principles, man, because none of us gonna make it out of your life. None of us, we all gotta go. And, and, I, and I believe in what George Washington Carver said, no one has the right to come into this world and go out of it 
without leaving behind distinct and legitimate reasons for having passed through. And the goal in life is to find your gift and the purpose in life is to give it away. You can't take any of this with you. So leave it all on the line. You know, one of the things that so moved me back in 96 and has continued to over the years is, and, and what I think really distinguishes your protest in a lot of ways is that you weren't only condemning racial and economic injustice in the US, but you had an internationalist stance. You going back all the way to 96 and even earlier, perhaps, you've been a vocal critic of US militarism internationally. And, you know, we've seen you express solidarity with all sorts of struggles internationally. Um, you've expressed solidarity with the Palestinian liberation struggle on social media. You know, recently we've seen a, a real uptick in Israeli state and settler aggression, Palestinian resistance to it in Jerusalem and elsewhere. You know, as an outspoken ally and advocate for the Palestinian people, tell us, if you would, why you think it's important for folks and Americans especially uh, to support the Palestinian cause. And maybe you can also share your thoughts on the importance of black Palestinian solidarity as more and more folks in this country become aware of the realities that Palestinians are living under and through. Man, Palestine has been one of the longest, I don't know if the longest, uh, occupations, if you, if, if you have it. Uh, when, when you're dealing with, whether it's the Palestinians or the Afghanistan, Afghanistan I mean, you name it, uh, wherever it is globally, I found that when I've studied history, when there's international solidarity, you get more done than when you keep it local. Malcolm showed us that when, and then Martin showed us toward the end when he shifted how serious it is by taking his life. When you take something from a, a civil and you make it, oh, let's take this to a human rights issue. So when you take it from America and you say, no, 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 let's find somebody just like during Ferguson, they, during the Black Lives Matter, Palestinians called or they called and said, hey, let's, let us share with you how we deal with this, <laughs> right, this issue. When you start connecting the dots that way, that's usually when, when you have all of these forces speaking as one per se, America is forced to listen. Countries are forced to listen because it's not, you can't keep it over here in this corner. There's this sense, man, that you can talk about everything else. But well, I ain't talking about the military. I'm talking about the military. The military is part of, when you talk about police, that's local military. They have now weapons. It's like you're on the streets of Aleppo, right? You got military grade weapons on the street with civ civilians. You basically, this is an occupation here as well. When it's all said and done, the military is doing the work for government and corporations. You know, and, and, and look, since this country's inception, they've been at war 90 some percent of its inception. They promote war. To become a citizen in this country, you have to recite a national anthem that was written by a slave owner. And you have to name important battles as a, just to become a citizen. So militarism is embedded, ingrained in this country. It's fabric. You want to talk about terror? Nobody compared to the amount of people that are affected by America's militarism, none. And so people don't want to talk about that until we do, right? We're not really getting at the, at the core of things. You cannot, you cannot separate that from what's happening in the world today. Not at all. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, this is why it's important to me because we have to connect those dots. When people in Palestine or people in Syria or people in Afghanistan, they say, well, hold on. They, and, I, and it burns me up. I got brothers I know. 
man, I ain't, man, I ain't, uh, I ain't saying them, they ain't doing nothing for me. I said, man, you missing the point. You missing the point, man. I said, well, be, be bigger than them then, right? God tells us to stand up for justice, even if it's against our own selves. He didn't say just for black people. He didn't say just for Muslims. No, it's across the board. He said, whoever begins their day and they're not concerned with the affairs of humanity are not of this community. So this is why it's important. It's about international solidarity. We bring about more change that way all the time. And this is what they're trying to keep. They keep us divided. Like, oh, I, they didn't say, how do you know? Well, you say something. Then they maybe say, oh, we're going to support them. And it becomes like a chain. Well, then we're going to support them. It becomes a chain reaction. You know, I am because we are Ubuntu. <laughs> you know, so, man, you're going to get me hyped up in here, man. We appreciate the energy. It's actually time for us to wrap up right now. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mahmoud. Thank you more, man. We've been in conversation with former NBA player Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf, who was blacklisted from the NBA after choosing not to participate in the National Anthem Fanfare in the mid-90s. Mahmoud's new autobiography, In the Blink of an Eye, is available now at KaepernickPublishing.com and everywhere books and audiobooks are sold. You can find a link on our website. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.